0: This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Frank Figlusi about his book, The FBI Way, subtitled Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. How are you, Frank?
1: I'm doing well, and I'm glad that we're able to do this. I know we've been trying for some time, and, and here we are.
0: And it's, it's nice for me. You know, I don't often get to talk to people who have grown up in a small town in western Connecticut, as I did. You're a little younger than me, but I was thinking about that when you talked at the beginning of the book about your view of the FBI growing up, watching TV and kind of learning about the FBI from media as most, I think that's probably true for most kids up to a certain point. You know, I'm sure things are different today, but um, I grew up in the 50s and 60s and watching a lot of, you know, I got to watch movies from the thirties, you know, the G man movies, and it kind of created an image that I think is probably different than people have, you know, we were more innocent. And I think that was probably still true for you, but it sounds like that was a big influence in getting you to become a law enforcement person for your, most of your career. I do touch on that early in the book, and it's interesting. I,
1: as as m- much as things change, they remain the same. And by that I mean, there have been studies done during my time in the FBI as to where people come from um, before they join the bureau, and the studies showed. Um, and I, I don't. I bet you this is, hasn't changed much over the years. That by and large, people who apply for the special agent position. Are coming from the smaller towns and communities, not not necessarily, necessarily rural communities, but absolutely the suburbs and and exurbs. And I wonder if it's um, a reflective a reflective of a sense of uh, advent, wanting it, uh, adventure, a sense of, um, of uh, movement, and the the role of the media that you talk about absolutely hasn't changed. I encounter young people today who frequently uh, have a steady diet of shows like CSI um, you know uh, criminal minds and, and they and, and it, it does distort the bureau of course in Hollywood dramatic fashion a lot of, a lot of young people today uh, want to be uh, crime scene uh, folks or they want to be behavioral profilers and you can tie that directly to uh, the Hollywood drama
0: right the whole idea that f- forensics <laughs> right comes right. from television but uh, but obviously there is a fascination with the idea of doing something important. And I think that's part of what you talk about in the book, the idea of a commitment to something bigger than yourself. You you don't join, as you said, you came into the FBI from law school where most of your classmates were likely to be going on to private sector jobs and making a lot of money, whereas you are going to work for the government, uh, which I've had some experience with myself and I know the pay scale is not the same. And, um, I think that's, you know, that you have to be a certain kind of person to make the decision to, um, enter, uh, law enforcement. And, and I think it, what drives a lot of people is a, that idea of trying to do something good. I credit
1: my parents with, Really instilling in us this a sense of right and wrong, uh, an appreciation for fairness and justice. You know that there there is good in the world, there is evil in the world, and I I really think that that shaped my mindset. And I, I clearly wanted to be on the side of of uh, justice. And of course, the the TV shows of the day certainly portrayed, you know, the G man as somebody who could solve everything within an hour or less, including commercials. Um, and then with regard to the, the law school, my law school experience, yeah, I, I, mentioned this in, in the book, there were classmates of mine in law school, you know, the well, last year of law school is largely spent figuring out where you're, you're going to work. And there's a lot of interviews and, and, and classmates start comparing notes on, you know, the initial salary and who's, who's got the highest offer. and, when I said, hey, I'm, I'm headed into the FBI, they kind of looked down their nose and said, are you, you really going to play cops and robbers for a living? And and the interesting thing about that, David, is you know, within about a year or two, uh, I was getting phone calls at my desk in the FBI from those same classmates saying that they didn't care for the lack of ethics and integrity in the law firms they had joined. They didn't ha- get any personal satisfaction out of what they were doing. And could I please send them an application for the FBI? So um, it is about uh, a rewarding, satisfying career, and, and it's, it's been a heck of an adventure and a wild ride.
0: Now, I, I, I know that you wrote this book, or I have to think that you wrote this book, at least in part, because of the challenges that arose during the four years prior you know, we'll say during the Trump administration. I mean, it's not as if the FBI has not had challenges to its credibility, to its stature, to its uh, sense of being on the right side of history before that. But it's never, you've never experienced a time when the institution of government were being attacked, literally attacked from within. And so I take it that you... Were spurred to write this book, if not completely, but at least in part by those events. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, you you'd be spot on there. I was the guy who kept saying, "I'm never going to be the one who writes a book uh, about their FBI career. That's all. That's all uh, uh, secretive stuff. It's it's not for public consumption. I'm not going to do a tell all. Um, and in fact, I stuck to those principles because the book's not a tell-all, and it's not um, about revealing secrets or, for that matter, attacking um, an administration, but rather what got me over the hurdle was, you're right, um, I got fed up with what I call bureau bashing by the Trump administration, Um, and far greater than that. I mean, it's fine if you want to criticize agencies in, in the government. It's actually healthy at times, depending on how you do it, but what bothered me the most, David, was that I was concerned that the public's misperceptions uh, about the FBI as to whether it was a political agency or not was actually eroding the mission of the men and women of the FBI. And so I ended up writing. It's kind of interesting. I've learned a lot about the publishing industry. This is my first book. And um, I ended up writing a book that that's called Evergreen, meaning you can pick it up hopefully five years. Somebody will be picking it up in five years and learn a heck of a lot, not only about how the FBI works, but about the lessons I've absorbed over 25 years in that organization. Because the message of the book is this, the FBI operates at an exceptionally high level of excellence under the most severe stress and crises, And I absorbed how the FBI does that by preserving what matters most to itself as an institution and its core values, how it maintains its core values, so that it can preserve what matters most to the country. And the message of the book is is this. You don't have to spend 25 years in the FBI to, to glean these kind of values-based leadership lessons. You can do it in the form of what I've distilled down to what I call the seven C's of, of the FBI way. And and so since the book is about values, um, it, it really stays above the fray of what we just went through in the past four years. It touches on it. There's no question. The book addresses um, the Trump administration, but it's more than that. It's it, the message is this, that our values as a democracy are wrapped up in our institutions. They're, they're not wrapped up in an individual. They're They're not about who's sitting in the Oval Office at any given time. They're wrapped up in the career professionals of the institutions that embody our democracy. And so it, when, when a president decides to attack every day the men and women of our institutions, even you know, re- more recently for the, in the Centers of Disease Control, President Trump started attacking science, career scientists uh, who were simply coming to work trying to keep people healthy. And so I said, that that's enough of that. We're, I am going to write the book. And it's a book about, Values preservation and leadership,
0: right? No, and I think that's important. Um, you know, I th- you know, no matter what we think about our government or how you know it, we you know, many of us, I think, believe it can be improved, it's not a perfect uh uh, uh entity, it's it's it should be evolving all the time, should be more just, more fair, and do more good for more people all the time. So, it should be. You know it's not bad to challenge the government and it's not bad to challenge institutions to do better but i think your point is that and this was i mean it, it it was it is about values and believing in um the meaning of what we do you know we have to have values that are consistent with a democratic society and i think that's what we saw under attack now it always i always found it peculiar i still am mystified and i you know when you watch a lot of television as we all did during the last 4 years you hear public figures and commentators saying i can't understand this doesn't make sense why would somebody do this you know what is the basis of it and then just yesterday and today we you know the the dni's report about the active measures essentially taken by the Russians to undermine both the 2016 and 2020 elections kind of gives you a clue and makes it hard not to see the through line between um, their social media disruption and the language of leaders who were in accord with them. so And I know that that's not what the book is about, so I, I'm not asking you within the context of the book, but it is what's going on right now. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about whether you agree in that connection between what you hear having been uh, stated about the Russians and what you know was stated by Americans being so similar. <laughs>
1: Yeah, this is a great topic because it plays right into each chapter of the book that, as as you noted, um, starts with the letter C. It's There's the seven Cs, because I believe that we as a nation collectively um, and a significant portion of our leaders, uh, our elected leaders, have decided to veer away from the values embodied in the seven C's. So it it might be a good time to just run through a couple of them. The the, the first chapter of the book starts with code. That's the first of the seven C's. And by code, I mean, we've got to agree on our core values. And whether you're a nation or you're a, you're a homeowners association or a family, you, you've got to be rowing in the same direction and agree mutually on what you stand for as an entity and I'm I'm really concerned that a significant portion of our population and our elected leaders have decided that maybe they stand for something else or they're misinterpreting what the core values are of our our nation and that you mentioned before an element that makes when, when you're not rowing in the same direction when you view the core values as different than than the other half of society you are far more susceptible and vulnerable to falling victim to our adversaries who are trying to get us into chaos and disarray and, and sniping at each other. And even, of course, an in in insurrection in our capital, which must, much, must have cleaved to no end our foreign adversaries. So the, the book's about holding together your team, nation, Fortune 100 company, whatever you're leading, and starting with that concept of code and core values. This the second C um, moves on to conservancy, which is this concept that preserving values is a team sport. And I again I, I look at what happened on January 6th on Capitol Hill as people who were no longer part of the team. They were off doing their own thing. And much of those people fell victim to foreign Social media propaganda, and when we when we hear our leaders repeating a mantra of um, election fraud, uh, stop the steal, uh, Trump is still the president. Um, even even more recently, uh, the COVID the COVID vaccine is going to uh, hurt you. Um, that they're repeating the propaganda that's coming from our adversaries. So um, we're at a real perilous time in our history where we've got to get back to the core values, the concept of conservancy. Um, and I, I, you know, I move on throughout the book to things like clarity. Again, are we, one of the things, I know this sounds strange, but as I was watching television on January 6th and seeing what was going on inside the Capitol building, one of my very first thoughts was, are we teaching civics anymore to mm-hmm. kids? Yeah. Are are Where did these people think that, they could overturn a valid election that's already been challenged through the court system. What Do they understand how we elect people here? And that, that goes toward that chapter called Clarity, which is, are we reinforcing in our, in, in, in our society, in our families? Are we reinfo- in our classrooms? Are we reinforcing the values that we're all supposed to be following? So um, you know I move, I move on through things like consequences. We certainly wrestled with the issue of consequences when we had our second, our first and second impeachment um, of the president, of President Trump, and, and 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 the Senate trials that didn't lead anywhere. So we, even as a nation, David, we, we seem to be unable to come up with the notion of accountability and consequences. And I give examples in the book throughout my career, um, particularly the portions of my career where I was a leader in various internal affairs uh, units in the FBI, ultimately becoming the chief inspector of the FBI. And so I know what it's like to um, have to wrestle with consequences for people who veer off of your code of conduct. Um, But we seem as a nation to be unable to hold people accountable.
0: Yeah, I think think that's actually very crucial. I think what you've said is really important that – you know, the, if you don't have a common set of beliefs, even again, they, we don't have to agree on everything, but we have to have core values. And what seems to be happening is that social media has enabled uh, a level of disruption and and distrust that's never been possible before. And one of the things I thought about, you you talked about this. Um, in the book, more as part of your narrative, but talking about how the FBI had to reinvent itself or be reinvented after nine eleven, and then later, I think you talked about the, introducing the notion of cybersecurity uh, and changing the way the FBI thinks about intelligence as well. Um, not just, I mean, after. Nine one one. It was a, it, making counterintelligence the primary goal of the agency, but then bringing in, as you, I think you talked about two thousand twelve, um, introducing the notion of cybersecurity. And I, I, I thought about that as, you know, kind of what we often do is react to what happens, like that somebody breaks down the door, so then we reinforce the door um, instead of going around the room saying where are, where are we vulnerable. What could be a problem? What could somebody take advantage of um, to cause harm uh, in the future? And I and I thought about social media and the whole notion of how we we understand and can find a way of of getting to the truth, to the idea that there is there is something called factuality. Um, and I wonder if that's something that you've also thought about in terms of what the FBI can do proactively going forward to be a, i mean it can't just be the FBI it's got to be the whole society but to be the guardian of truth
1: yeah this is the challenge facing all of us and in particular those in the intelligence community and and law enforcement and it's interesting because i i discuss much of this under the, the last chapter of the book called consistency and people might say so wait a minute frank you you talk about changing the bureau's mission um, back then, after nine eleven, 11 now um, you talk about companies being able to pivot and, and change how they approach things. Why do you include that under a chapter called consistency? Consistency sounds like rigidity. And my message in that chapter is that a successful organization, and in our case now a um, is successful when it's able to consistently stick to its mission by recognizing that it needs to change how it executes that mission. So right now, uh, and the example, of course, I give for 9-11, uh, the Bureau post 9-11, the Bureau asked itself a really simple question after 9-11, um, has our mission changed? And do we need to change how we, or do we need to change how we do the mission? And the answer is the mission of the FBI doesn't change. It, it is the uh, the nation's premier law enforcement and domestic security agency So protecting America is the FBI's mission, but in order to keep doing that mission successfully, there are times throughout history where the Bureau has to consistently morph and change how it executes that. So in 9-11, it had to become far more than a predictive intelligence agency capable of stopping bad things from happening, um, and, and less of this phenomenal investigative agency that could... Come in and tell you what happened after it already happened. And so we have to ask ourselves now as an as a nation and and of course within the FBI, they have to say, what about this domestic extremism threat? What what about the violent extremism threat? If now we're dealing with a what is roundly considered to be the number one threat in America, and it's us, it's the insider threat. And what does that mean about Morphing the, F- the the way the FBI executes its mission to protect America, and these are complicated questions because um, you know it's easy to, to rally around an external threat. Hey, um, you know those those people over there are, are coming to get us, and 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 now it. No, wait a minute, the, the people down the street are coming to get us, and and so we've got to wrestle with things like social media regulation. Um, there is no question that the primary driving force. Behind what happened, what got us to January 6th was social media, and and the conspiracy theories and fabrications, and this echo chamber that we're all living in now, where we get our news from one source and refuse to to listen to multiple sources of information. Um, and people say no, wasn't the single dri- most important driving force Donald Trump? And my my response to that is Donald Trump would never have been um. Um, what he is without the power of social media and the speed with which people can s- press the send button and something or plan something or spread a lie, a lie often planted by a foreign intelligence service, by the way. So um, we got to get out in front of the domestic threat. We've got to get out in front of social media. And and boy, when we better listen when CEOs of the big tech companies tell us they want and need more regulation
0: well and of course it is you come up in two ways here is one is the the basic problem of privacy which we all you know in america we all are concerned about privacy we don't want government uh having the capability of knowing everything about us that's a kind of core value that we all agree on but somehow we have to figure out how to enable um protection at you know kind of balance protection against uh privacy but then what you're talking about with the uh with the large tech companies you run up against what has essentially been an unfettered um, ability for them to sweep up more data about humans than has ever been done before ironically um, you know, here we're all worried about the government having our information. Really, what we should be worrying about is Google, Facebook, and Amazon having our information. They have more than the government does. And they are their profit motive in, uh, kind of drives them to um, to do things with that private information that we would never really want them to do. But they now have so much power, it's really difficult to rein them in.
1: Well, perhaps first and foremost, among uh, uh, the things that we never wanted them to do was sell our data not only to just commercial marketing firms, but now we've discovered that they've been selling it to entities um, that are working for state state-sponsored uh, intelligence services and And so um, it, it's been a huge mess. And I think it's it's interesting that old good old-fashioned capitalism and profit motive, are and are now motivating the big tech firms to say, "Okay, wait, wait a minute, we we're in trouble. Um, we're we're facing legal liability for what we're doing, and and we're we're losing our standing in in society. So please regulate us more." I, I was floored by um, the following uh, fact, which is that every day, just at Facebook. Something like twenty five to thirty thousand people come to work every day under the rubric of safety and security. that that number, thirty thousand people at Facebook doing security and safety, that's about the the rough equivalent of the size of the entire FBI. Um, that that's how enormous this challenge is um, for them. and and you can duplicate that around twitter and and all the other platforms. So, um, we've got to we've got to get to the bottom of this. And you, you mentioned the privacy issue. Um, this is a discussion that we've got to have as a nation, and Congress has to get with the program quickly. And that is <clears throat> this whole issue of the fact that we still don't have a domestic terrorism law in this country. And and pri- privacy and civil liberties concerns plays directly into that. We are now well over twenty five years after the Oklahoma City Federal Building bombing. Who pulled off that bombing? Two white guys from the United States. And we still don't have a law called domestic terrorism. Ironically, we have a legal definition of domestic terrorism in the United States Code. It's defined. We simply haven't outlawed it. So that's why you're seeing arrests for what happened at the Capitol for things like trespass, assault, uh, theft of Nancy Pelosi's podium. None of those charges truly reflect the gravity of what happened at the Capitol that day. The FBI has already said that was domestic terrorism. So we just can't charge people with the kind of crime that would send them away for 20 years to life. And we have that same uh, law on the books for international terrorists. So um, why is this a privacy issue? It's a privacy issue because we have to decide as a nation, are we okay with... People inside, U.S. citizens inside the United States being looked at because they are uh, a domestic terrorist, because they are planning violence that is anti American. And as soon as you say that to people, you, you start getting responses like, oh, are you talking about policing ideology? Are you talking about policing the president's enemies or the president's friends? And the answer there should be absolutely not. I'm talking about a law that says. If you're committing violence for the purpose of intimidating or coercing a government or a, a civilian organization for political objectives, you are committing domestic terrorism. And if we if we write the law correctly and attach the consequences that we should to it, we can do this. But we get weighed down immediately in privacy um, and civil liberties discussions, which really shouldn't aren't part of the equation. Um, and and you know Congress can't agree on anything right now. I am not optimistic that we're going to see any meaningful domestic terrorism law passed um, uh, with the present uh, makeup of, of of the Congress. And and um, we can't even you know just today I heard they can't even agree on an independent commission to look into what happened at the Capitol. Um, that that's that's being pushed aside right now. So we're in a mess and. Um, uh, the FBI finds itself in the center of this mess, as it does periodically throughout history.
0: Well, that's—I mean, it is because, despite being a law enforcement agency, it's still a—you a, know—it's a, a creation of a political entity, which is us. You know, we are politics, and so um, you know, everything that's happening right now is a reflection of the disaster of uh, of our—you know—of of our of our politics, and it's you know, it's hard to unravel because we all have strong opinions about who's responsible that make it even more difficult to you know to to uh, correct or or um, work together to make things uh, to actually work again.
1: You mentioned politics and, I, and I, that's this is an important um, concept because, I people listening to us right now might be saying, "Hey, um, Frank's making some interesting points, but it sounds like he's written a book that says the FBI is perfect and is the answer to everything." And I, I want to, I, I want to. Your you mention of the word politics um, prompted me to to say this. I, I, this book is not about um, the FBI being perfect. In fact, far from it. It um, and it addresses that issue, and it says, particularly in the chapter called "Credibility," that credibility. Is not about being perfect. It's about being passionate about getting it right. And when you screw up, it's about being transparent that a mistake was made and then being open about what you're going to do to fix it moving forward. And, you know, fixing it moving forward and transparency seems to be a real problem um, with our Congress right now and a significant portion of our leaders. And in fact, that word politics really is what got um, the FBI sideways with a significant portion of the public because of some mistakes made by some very senior people at the FBI. So, you know, Jim Comey, a man with perhaps some of the highest ethics um, ever to serve in Washington, he, he made a mistake when he held that infamous press conference at headquarters the flag straight behind it and said, quote, no reasonable prosecutor would ever prosecute Hillary Clinton um, for the emails um, and, you know, for her handling of, of her emails as Secretary of State. In that moment in time, he politicized the FBI. He didn't intend to do it, but about half the population looked at that and said, oh, no, What? what is he making a prosecutive decision as FBI director? FBI directors don't make prosecutive decisions. They hand it across the street to the Department of Justice, where plenty of prosecutors are there to make prosecutive decisions. So um, that and then, of course, it got worse because later on down the road, Comey had to announce that he was going to reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton because they had possibly found a new email sitting in uh, former Congressman Anthony Weiner's laptop. And and then, you know, people like, wait, well wait a minute. He's getting. He's inserting himself in a political campaign right now, and then on the eve of the 2016 election, he has to announce publicly once more. Never mind. Um, we found no, no new emails. So, and and that I think did uh, impact the outcome of the 2016 election. And in the minds of many many Americans, the FBI in that moment became some kind of politicized organization. That that is death to the FBI and its mission. It has to be political and neutral
0: at all times. If it's going to be that premier law enforcement and domestic intelligence agency, I agree with you. Which is why I never liked J. Edgar Hoover, and I I thought uh, CoIntel Pro was just one of the worst things ever done. This idea that the FBI would take political positions or use its authority to alter, you know, to influence uh, and alter the political discourse is just not. Not going to work, and I think you're right. I, and I, one of the things I will praise you for in this in this book is that you don't whitewash the FBI. You called out Comey. You called out Peter Strzok. Um, and I think what you pointed out, and I think, is valuable for any organization, is to be uh, uh, capable of policing itself, which is really no small feat. And uh, particularly, I think, for an organization with high standards, you have to be willing to accept the consequences when somebody that's part of your organization fails to follow, um, the organization's, uh, principles, which, you know, you see that at, uh, West point, uh, I think it, it, applies to the FBI. The ability to, um, uh, apply your values consistently on your own people is crucial.
1: Yeah. And I had, I, I some of the most valuable, Uh, moments in my career, although they were painful, were the times that I uh, was assigned to internal affairs functions. In in my case, um, the Office of Professional Responsibility, where I was a unit chief, um, that had to make really tough disciplinary calls on really good people in the FBI who had, for some reason, violated um, some rule or regulation, or worse, um, in the bureau and and having to wrestle with those decisions good people doing bad things why it happens what are the stressors involved in their lives did the bureau have anything to do with that and coming up with fair and just outcomes it made me a much better leader later on in my career and possibly a, a better human being because of it and I in the book I encourage corporations um, and people in um, the corporate world to, raise their hand and say, I, yeah, i it's not going to be fun, but I want to learn how this is done. I want to be a conservator of the values for, for which my team stands. Um, and you'll, you'll be the
0: better leader for it. Well, I think it is actually, you know, I know you, you kind of aim the book, I think at people in any kind of organization, I think it is important to say that, um, Anyone who is in a position of leadership or works in a company um, could benefit from reading your book because the value system is one that I think most corporations, most businesses would aspire to. It's not clear that they have inculcated the values that they may put in their kind of public documents to management style. And I think that's important. You know, if we believe in being on the right side, most people you talk to don't want to be on the wrong side. They want to do good, but it's hard. It's not easy. It's not black and white. It is kind of, you know, we're human beings, so it's a gray area every day, not necessarily white or black. And um, I think it's important to remember Value systems and have the courage to apply them.
1: Well, I appreciate that. It, uh, that is the, the message,
0: one of the messages in the book
1: and in the chapter on consequences. I, I talk about how easy it is to uh, do the right thing when everyone agrees with you. Um, but to do it in the face of severe consequences is when you figure out what you're made of as an organization and as a person. I give a story. In that in that chapter about um, agents, uh, I, when I was a, a leader in the Miami field office of the FBI, at the time Miami was overseeing the FBI's presence at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where um, hostile combatants were being detained during the war on terrorism. And um, one day, my agents came, Miami agents came back from Cuba, back from Guantanamo Bay, closed the door in my office and sat down and said, "Boss, we have to talk." Um, we've been walking out of interrogation sessions down at Guantanamo Bay because things are going on in those sessions that are contrary to what the, how the FBI does interviews and how the FBI collects evidence uh, for court proceedings. And that ultimately turned into the FBI at, at, at a Washington, D.C. and White House level saying, um, we got a problem here, Um the military and other agencies are doing things their way. But if we're supposed to preserve cases for potential prosecution in U.S. courts, we, we can't be using, quote-unquote, enhanced interrogation techniques on these detainees. And um, that was an, an example of saying and standing up and saying, there's something wrong going on. It's inconsistent with our mission, and something needs to change. And that that did not make us friends with fellow members of the intelligence community. And, and so, you know, it's an example I give of saying sometimes you've got to do the right thing, even
0: when the consequences are going to be painful for you if you do it. Yeah. I think that's important. I think, you know, I'm really glad you said that (laughs) because it's something we all, you know, we all get, we all are faced with it. It's that moment when you know that you have an opportunity to make something right, but you're going to pay for it. and. Uh, that I think, you know, when you bring it all down to the personal, I think it helps remember. It helps us remember how difficult it is to um, to actually uh, carry out the values that we say we believe in. And you know, we're not often and always asked to make sacrifices as some of our forebears did. And I think about this a lot. That it's been for most of us um, a kind of free ride, and Uh, I think that's part of the problem.
1: And this message exists on an even higher plane in the book, which is on a national level now. Aren't we going through something that requires us to try to do the right thing to save our democracy, even though it's going to be incredibly painful? People have lost relationships. People aren't speaking to each other in families. Neighbors um, aren't talking to, to neighbors and it's all about you know who you voted for or which TV network you watch and, and what you think you stand for. And we, you know, for, for so many years, you know, you talked about a free ride. I think we thought that preserving our values was somebody else's job. Oh, we have elected officials who do that. Oh, we have a president who will do that in companies that I consult with. I'll ask them who, who's in charge of integrity and standards here. Oh, there's there's an office down the hall that does that. It's. But but the message of the book is, no, it's it's our problem. It's our job to do that. This is a conservancy. And and so we've got to do that as a nation right now, even though um, it's going to be painful to do. Yeah,
0: and it is actually pretty... What, what, more, what is more important than our democracy, really? When you get right down to it, that is what we all really say we believe in. And if we really believe in it, we have to stand up for it at all times and particularly now when it's really on the line because it is under threat i i've felt that for the last couple of years this is like wow this is the scariest time that i have i can remember i just don't know whether there has been a scarier time for us um i mean when i was a little kid and they were we were worried about the russians you know dropping nuclear bombs on us we were all pretty scared but this is different but in a lot of ways much worse uh, because there, as you said before, it a lot of this is coming from ourselves. It's coming from inside, not from outside. Yeah, I
1: think it's the combination of threats that we face right now that that may, in some ways, be unprecedented. Because I I realize we've been through a civil war as a nation, we've been through presidential assassinations and impeachments, and certainly violent protest eras in Vietnam and civil rights era. But but the combined threats right now of external adversaries the influence of social media for propaganda and falsehood, um, and then the racism and notions of white supremacist ideology that have risen to the top right now in the form of severe violence and and threat, um, all are combining to make this um, a very perilous time. And it's going to take all of us um, trying to do the the right thing to get the, the, the train back on the track.
0: Well, I, I hope that it doesn't happen that I have to call you up and say Frank, it's time. <laughs> you know, we're going to have to stand up and really do this. But I, you know, I fear that that may that time's coming. You know, where um, it really will be up to us to stand up for uh, freedom and democracy.
1: It's why I chose to end the book with that last of the seven C's: consistency. Just just being able to cling to the core values that got us here. Um, And if you've got a company or even a family who's going through a crisis, and now perhaps we've got our nation going through a crisis, it's not the time to abandon the principles and think that there might be some new way of doing this that we haven't figured out yet, but rather to go back and double down and cling to the core values, in this case, of our democracy, rule of law, constitution, three equal branches of government. If we can do that successfully, we'll, we'll get through just about anything.
0: Well, that's, that's a good moment to, for us to end. I think you summed it up really well, and I appreciate your taking this much time to talk to me today. Uh, this has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Frank Figluzzi about The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Terrific book. I really recommend it.
1: Thanks, David. I've enjoyed our time.